morning, Woodland Hills. Good morning, congregation. Good morning, podgregation, or whenever you're watching this, participating in it. It's good to have you uh, as part of this whole, whole thing, sharing this kingdom moment together. So we're learning to love together, so eloquently said. I'm Greg Boyd, uh, teaching pastor here, and uh, it's an honor to be part of this congregation. I want to share this before I get into my message. Um, I don't know if you ever heard of this organization. I hadn't heard of it until uh, just a couple weeks ago, but it's called Sweet Potato Comfort Pie. Sweet Potato Comfort Pie. And, and uh, among the things that they do is they, on, on, on MLK Weekend, they uh, uh, present pies, like sweet potato pies, uh, to individuals or groups that they uh, think have done a good job at, at speaking out against racism and building community and building bridges and those kind of things. And, and they... Uh, they're located here in the Twin Cities, but they have branches all over uh, the United States, as I, as I, if, I, if I understand it correctly. And um, for every year that Martin Luther King has been dead, they, they bake that number of pies. So this year they baked 92 pies and gave it to uh, just different organizations and stuff that they think are, are taking good stances on things. And so uh, last weekend after the service, four of these folks came up here and presented me with this pie, uh, which I accepted on behalf of Woodland Hills Church. And uh, yeah, and so we were... I, 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 I'm just really honored by that. I'm, thank you, sweet potato comfort pie. And man, is that good. I'd never had a sweet potato pie before. And uh, woo, did not do anything to help me keep my girlish figure. Okay. Anyways. Okay, so uh, we had two weeks off uh, from our, our series in Matthew. And now we're going back to this. Uh, and going back to the series on prayer. I did a couple messages on petitionary prayer a little earlier. Um, and now we're getting back to it, and we're uh, looking at the Our Father as sort of the paradigmatic prayer uh, that Jesus teaches us to pray. So I'll read the first part of the Our Father, Matthew 6, verses 9 and 10, where Jesus says, pray then in this way. Now, he's not saying repeat these exact words. In fact, he just, a few verses earlier, it said, don't pray like the Gentiles who just keep on repeating themselves, these empty phrases or whatever. So this isn't, he's saying these are the exact words we have to say, but he's giving us kind of the, the, a parad- paradigm for prayer, the kind of things that we should cover in prayer, the purpose of prayer. And so he says, pray then in this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Abba, Father, teach us to pray, to be a praying people, a trusting people, people who do war on our knees. We look to you as our rock, as our shelter, as our strength in a time of storm. You are the one who gives peace that passes all understanding. We thank you for that. And now, Lord, open our eyes and open our ears to hear the word and to be impacted by it and transformed by it. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. As I mentioned, I think, uh, several weeks ago, uh, this prayer is petitionary. Uh, Jesus isn't just saying, you know, stating facts. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. It, 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 it has the connotation of, Lord, l- let your name be hallowed. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's petitionary. Um, let's look at this phrase, our Father in heaven. What does that mean, in heaven? Uh, is it some kind of location? Is it, is it God's address? Uh, when I say, where is heaven, probably most of us would think up, right? Heaven's up. 
Because that's the way the Bible usually talks about it. In fact, it's almost a universal phenomenon in, in religious writings that the sky is identified as the place where the gods dwell or where God dwells. Uh, in the ancient Near East, which is the context in which the Old Testament was written, uh, they had a unique spin on this. God's, the sky is not only the, uh, the place where, where the gods abide, but they abide on mountaintops that are above the clouds. And, and they would look at actual mountains in their area, Mount Horeb or Mount Zion or, or what have you, and they believed that their chief deity lived on top of that mountain. And because this is how everyone in the ancient Near East thinks, and because God doesn't manipulate minds to, to think true thoughts, he doesn't coerce people, he, he has to meet people where they're at. And so if, if, if these people think about God as living on the, the, on the clouds and in the sky and on the mountains, well then God accepts that and that's where we find this kind of language in the Bible. Yahweh is depicted sometimes as residing on Mount Zion and, and when he has business matters to take care of, he rides down on the clouds and, 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 and does his business. Um, but see, the thing is this, we, we today, uh, we, we've been to the, all the mountaintops and we haven't found any deities. And, and we've been out in outer space and we haven't found any deities. So what's up with this? Uh, in fact, we know that God is omnipresent, right? God's present everywhere. He sustains everything by the word of his, his, his power. And so um, this lo locale can't be some kind of literal location. In fact, when Jesus ascends up into heaven from Jerusalem, at the very end of his ministry, we say he, was, he went up to heaven, but if you were living in New Zealand, he didn't go up to heaven, he descended into he heaven. Because we know the world's round. And so really there is no up and down. So what is with this? In Greek, the, the, the word that's used for sky is the same word that's used for heaven. That's how closely they identified the sky with the, 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 the realm of the gods. And what's behind it is, is that this is, becomes a metaphor for God's transcendence. Uh, when the Ancient people looked at the sky, and when we look at the sky, there's no horizon. It, it's, it has a sense of infinitude. It's expansive. And so, of course, that's, the kind of, that's where the gods dwell. It's a way of saying that God is more than this world. He transcends this physical realm. We may be, maybe call it a different dimension. Heaven's a different dimension or, or something of that sort. But it's not a literal location. God doesn't live in heaven the way I live in Minnesota or the way I live in a house or the way you live in a house. It's, it's not a definite locality. It's a dimension of being, but it's a metaphor. And it's important to remember that it's a metaphor. Because when you forget that a metaphor is a metaphor, and you take it literally, you end up uh, diminishing God. Uh, there was a teacher who uh, I heard one time, um, a real sincere lady, but not terribly well-informed. But she, she was doing a Bible study with some folks, and, and, and she looked up the word for heaven, uh, in Greek, and it's Uranus, which then she realized was the name of the planet in our solar system, Uranus. And so she came to the conclusion <clears throat> that when Jesus ascended into heaven, he went and lived on the planet Uranus. And that's where, the, that's where heaven is. Um, didn't occur to her that maybe we named the planet after the Greek word. Uh, it didn't occur to her. She, she thought she discovered the planet that Jesus lives on. Well, God bless her, but a God who would dwell on a planet is just a bigger version of us. Uh, it's a diminished God. Uh, and, and so it's important to remember that these are metaphors. Don't take them literally. It diminishes God all the time when we do. In fact, all of our talk about God and all of our language with God is, is analogical or metaphorical. It's non-literal. Uh, in any kind of analogy, you say something is like something else. Uh, 
in saying that something is like something else, to draw this analogy, you're also saying that it's unlike this something else. There's a like and a dislike. And the key to understanding metaphors and analogies is to understand in what respect the author intends it to be like and in what respect they intend it to be unlike. So for example, we just sang about it. God is our rock. You find that, 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 that analogy all over the place in the Bible. God's our rock. Well, you, you, you understand what the metaphor means when you understand that it's referring to God's stability, God's solid, God's its character's unchanging, God's not fickle. God doesn't, you know, not, he's not like water and sand. No, this is, you can build your life on a rock. You get the metaphor if you understand that. But if you think that the author is trying to say God's made of minerals or that God is hard or that God has a particular size, you're missing the point of the metaphor. Or when the Bible says that you know, God's like a hen that wants to gather her chicks under her wings. Jesus uses that analogy. You understand what the point of the analogy is if you understand that the author's saying God protects us like a hen does its chicks and, and cares for us and, and things like that. But you're really missing the point if you think that the author's trying to say that God is big bird and got feathers and he lays eggs or he's dumb as a chicken. No, that, that's not the point. But all of our language is, is, is like and unlike. The same is true for the word father. We know earthly fathers and, and so we refer to God as father. Um, you're intended to capture there that God cares for us. Uh, he has a love and a concern, and he's a provider like a good father. And so this first clause of the, the, the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven, note that in heaven denotes this otherness of God, the transcendence of God, the incomprehensibility of God, the God who you know, created all things and sustains all things, the infinite God. But this infinite God, this God who's other than all that we can think, wants to have this fatherly relationship with us, this intimate relationship with us, this providing relationship with us. God's not just other than, God's also very, very close. And, 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 and so he brings these two together. But if you think that the author was saying that just as all of our earthly fathers are imperfect, so God is imperfect, well, you're missing the point. If you think that the author's trying to say that we're literal biological descendants of God the Father, well, you're missing the point. And let me add, if you think that the author is trying to say that God uh, is, is more male-like than female-like, you're missing the point. Because the truth is that men and women are equally made in the image of God. Uh, they come from God, and so God is, has is masculine characteristics, or what we stereotypically call masculine characteristics, and feminine characteristics, and not more one than the other. Uh, the gender wasn't the point of this, this metaphor. Uh, and you find in the Bible that uh, you find feminine imagery sometimes used of God. So we're told that, uh, for example, Isaiah 49, uh, God is likened to a mother nursing her infant. And one of the names for God in the Old Testament is El Shaddai. It means nurturing God, but literally it means many-breasted God, a God who, who, who's nurturing. It's a feminine imagery. Uh, uh, Proverbs 8, uh, the wisdom of God is likened to a woman. And it's pretty amazing that we find any kind of feminine imagery associated with God uh, in, 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 the, in, in Scripture, because you're dealing with a very strongly patriarchal culture. In fact, that's true of all ancient cultures, with one or two little exceptions for brief periods of time. On the whole, women were regarded as across-the-board inferior. And so in those cultures, it wouldn't feel exalting to apply feminine imagery to God. So it really shows the spirit of God breaking through a patriarchal culture that we have any kind of feminine Im imagery at all. Things today are still not equal between men and women. Men still get paid more for doing the same job that, that, that women do. But we're certainly not 
as backwards as we were back in biblical times. I don't think, in general, in, 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 uh, in developed countries, uh, in the Western world, we, we don't have the assumption that women are in any sense inferior to men, even though our systems don't reflect that equality. So we should have an easier time uh, accepting feminine models and metaphors and analogies for God, um, because there's no, nothing pejorative that would keep us from doing that. And I encourage people, since we know that if you want the fullness of God, um, to ask the Spirit to help you explore relating to God sometimes uh, to the feminine side of God. I have shared my own experience of this a sermon back in, I think it's 2019 uh, in November called Where's Mommy? But how I, that's where I kind of came out is saying that for me, the most healing aspect of my relationship with God has been with God as mother. Uh, they're envisioning God as mother. I also envision God as father. And, and you know, don't metaphors, you can use different ones, okay, because it's not literal. But uh, that has just been so healing to me. And uh, I encourage you that there's a, there, there can be a dimension of God's fullness that you experience maybe more profoundly when you envision God as, 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 as in feminine terms rather than just strictly in masculine terms. God is mother. God is sister. God is female friend. However the Spirit relates it to you, I encourage you to be open to that because it can be, in fact, very, very healing. Don't forget that when we say Father, we're speaking metaphorically. Because if, 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 if you start to forget that, then you may actually begin to think that God is more male-like than God is female-like, which is simply not the case. All right. Then Jesus says, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. The concept of hallowed there is simply to keep something holy. Uh, to keep it set apart. The word holy. It, uh, agios, it has a connotation of being set apart. Something being different. It's not common. It's extraordinary. Keep God's name holy. The concept of name in Semitic culture, uh, isn't just an identifier, though that it is an identifier. The name of God is Yahweh, and it's sacred. But it's more than that. It wasn't just a label. Uh, someone's name denoted their character and it denoted their reputation. And we still talk that way sometimes. Um, you know, boy, that person has really made a name for themselves. Name stands for character and for, for, for reputation. And so what this clause is saying is, uh, Father, Empower us to keep your name holy, to keep your character separate and distinct, uh, to keep your reputation, uh, not make it common, not make it something part of this mundane world. May we always preserve your set-apart, beautiful, holy nature. This phrase, hallowed be your name, it, it's uh, related to a few other texts in the Bible. I'll, I'll mention two of them. In Exodus 20, we find this fourth commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now what does that mean? Taking the name of the Lord in vain. When I was a young Catholic boy in third grade, uh, they taught us that, that to take the name of the Lord in vain is, is where you say, God, I want you to damn something. You know the phrase. Uh, that was, in fact, we had, I'll never forget it because it was one of those days I got in a whole lot of trouble because we had a special nun come in wasn't a regular teacher, and back in my, these days, you know, the nuns wore the full hobbit, you know, or habit, uh, with the cloth and all that kind of stuff, and you got to realize that we, 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 nuns were like just a, a hair beneath the angels in our view, okay, they're, they're holy, and this nun comes in and went through all the words we're never supposed to say, she just said them, like, never say this word, and don't say this word, 
And how are you, as a third grader, supposed to not burst out laughing when you see this nun saying swear words? And they explained to us, well, if you say a swear word in the process of teaching someone not to swear, well, then that's not a sin. But it was, so, I, was, it was, I, I, was I couldn't control myself, so I got in a whole lot of trouble. I also, and then the, the, worst, the worst sin was taking the name of the Lord in vain. And, and it, God, I want you to damn that. Which happens to me in my father's favorite phrase. And so I ended up coming home and hear, hear him say that word and uh, that phrase. And I said, Dad, you're going to go to hell. He said, I don't give a flipping. And he continued on with his discussion. See the role model I had? No wonder I'm so screwed up. See, the thing is, cursing is taking the, the name of the Lord in vain. Um, but there's a reason for it. And see, they, they never told us, I, I, never, I never understood, like, what is so bad about those words? You know, they're just words. How can they, you know, I, I, they didn't explain. Why are, the, why are these words bad words to say? But see, it is taking the name of the Lord in vain because you're taking God and God's character and God's reputation and you're reducing it to something mundane. Just an expression of your anger, an expression of your frustration. And that's, that's desecrating God. That's profanity. You're taking something sacred and you're making it something common, ordinary, and even disgusting. Um, but taking the name of the Lord in vain means more than that. It goes beyond that. A uh, number of scholars have, have pointed out that to take the name means that you, you, you're bearing a name. You're bearing the character. You're bearing the reputation of the one whose name you are carrying. Um, so that brings me to the second passage that this uh, phrase is related to. The Lord says to his people through Ezekiel, Ezekiel 36, he says, I will sanctify my great name. It's the same concept they're making holy. I'm going to set it apart. Which has been profaned among the nations. And which you, speaking to his own people, which you have profaned among them. We profane something, when we take something that is utterly unique and, 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 and set apart, but we make it something common. We bring it down to the earthly mundane level. He says, you have profaned my name among them. But now he looks to a point in the future and he says, and the nations shall someday know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when, listen to this, through you I display my holiness before their eyes. Through you, I want to display my holiness, my uniqueness, my set-apartness uh, before all the nations. See, God's people, the Israelites, were called to glorify God's name. Uh, to be the means by which God displayed his uniqueness, his holiness, to the nations. And in God's plan, it was that uniqueness that the Israelites were supposed to display to the nations that would draw all the nations in. There to be the light in the darkness, but to be light in the darkness, you've got to contrast with the darkness. And so the Israelites were called to be different because God is different. And, and, and the way that they lived differently was to be a reflection of how unique and, and how different, how holy, how uncommon Yahweh is. Among all the gods of the ancient Near East, this God stands out alone. But you only see that if his people are willing to live differently. Some of the weird laws we have in the Old Testament, and there are some really weird ones there. But if you put them in their cultural context, they make a little bit more sense. Because there are ways in which God wanted his people to stand out, to be different. To not have the same practices as all the other nations. One of the ways that the Israelites were supposed to be different was that they were supposed to have a king. Because uh, God wanted to display his holiness to the other nations and to show that his people don't need a human king because they trust in Yahweh as their king. He wanted them to be different. And in the ancient Near East, that is a, I mean, that's huge because everything in the culture revolved around the king. The king was the center of everything. But Israel was not to have any king. 
not any human king, because they would look to God as their king. But see, they struggled with this. In fact, I think this is what God's people have most often struggled with. It's hard to be different. It's hard to stand out. It's hard to preserve some uniqueness. Uh, it, it's, our natural flow is to, to want to fit in uh, with other people. And so they struggled with this. And they had trouble trusting an invisible God and trouble trusting an invisible king. And so you find this phrase going on throughout the Old Testament that they wanted to be like the other nations. They want a king who will lead them out to war like all the other nations. And sometimes they wanted to worship the gods of the other nations because they're so much easier to worship. They're right there in front of you. They're tangible. These folks don't have to trust an invisible God. Uh, we do. And so they gravitated. Instead of glorifying God by displaying the uniqueness of God and the distinctness of God and advancing his unique reputation, rather than that, the Israelites tended to blend in. Become just like the other nations. And so by how they lived, see, they were called to bear God's name. But when they're living just like everybody else, and worshiping the same gods as everybody else, and just fitting in, well, they're bearing God's name in vain. They're bearing God's name to no end. It's futile. Uh, they're not displaying the uniqueness of God. That is bearing God's name in vain. But note that in Ezekiel 16, the second passage we read, uh, the Lord looks to, a, to the future and he says, someday I will display my holiness through you. Um, Ezekiel and Jeremiah and several other prophets, they were given a revelation of a coming new covenant. And in this new covenant, they said they, they, they saw that God's people are no longer going to rely on a human king because they'll, they'll, they'll acknowledge that God is the only king. And, and there's coming a time when the, God's people will no longer need the law because God's going to write the law on our hearts through the power of his spirit. And it's coming a time when God's people will no longer trust in their own resources as the Israelites always were inclined to do because the spirit of God will be poured out on all flesh and will empower young and old, male and female, rich and poor, servant, every class of people will be encompassed by this, by the power of the spirit. And there's coming a time, they said, when God's people will no longer go to war, but rather they'll take their weapons of, uh, uh, that are intended to kill and, and beat them into tools that feed people, praise God. Now see, this coming covenant, this new covenant that they look forward to, when finally God's holiness will be displayed through his people, that is what Jesus inaugurated Amen. with his life and with his death and with the pouring out of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Amen. That is the coming of the new covenant. Jesus, before he, he ascended into heaven or descended, if you're from New Zealand, um, he says this. He tells him to wait in Jerusalem because you're going to receive power from on high when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Okay, there's a, a new kind of power that's going to be unleashed. It was given selectively in the Old Testament, but now it's coming on all who will simply submit to the, the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And the power is the power to become a witness, to bear witness, to bear God's name, but not in a vain way, to bear God's name in a way that his uniqueness and, and, and his holiness, his character can shine through you. It's coming a time when God's people will, no, will finally be empowered to no longer carry that name in vain. The coming of the Holy Spirit means that now we are empowered to display the unique character, the unique plans, and advance the unique reputation of God by how we live. And by doing that, we're able to invite people to, to something radically different from what they already have and introduce them to a unique Lord, uh, a unique faith, a unique kingdom, and a unique community. But it all depends on our willingness to be different. Now, I'm not talking about being different for the sake of being different. Uh, I've been there. I've done that. 
It's no fun. I mean, the first church I was saved in, praise God, they were, they were holiness Pentecostals, and they were holy, uh, according to their own terms anyways. And I, I don't want to diss these people because I really did find God in, in this group, and I think I needed a radical group like this to have a clean break from, from my past. And so, you know, and they're sincere people, praise God, but they had a funky view of holiness. In, in, in this church, you know, women, they, holy meant that, that, that women never cut their hair, and so they always had their hair up in this big bun, you know, they and it meant that women never wear makeup and never can wear jewelry and can never wear pants. They always got to just wear dresses. And it meant that guys were not supposed to have any facial hair because that's a sign of rebellion. And we're not supposed to have hair down past our ears or something like that because that's a sign of rebellion, although I never understood that one, but that's what they said. And, and, and all, none of us were allowed to, you know, go to sporting events or to go to movies or to listen to rock music or go out dancing or smoking or, or basically if it was fun, you couldn't do it. The only, thing, the only thing you were allowed to do is go out to eat. And so that's all we did. And that's why everyone in this church was, not everyone, but I, I say we were hefty. So here's the thing. I, 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 I totally res- I respect these folks for their sincerity and their commitment and for their willingness to be different. Uh, that part they got right. We are supposed to be different. But see, the kind of behavior that counted as holiness here, um, it, it, didn't, it didn't display God's unique character. It didn't display God's... You know, it advanced his, his, his unique reputation. It didn't keep the name of God holy. Uh, it wasn't a witness to the world. I mean, no one cares. First of all, if you're walking around and, and you don't cut your hair, well, that's great. And you don't wear makeup, fine. But no one cares. You know, oh, you, you don't, guys don't have any facial hair. Well, fine. Uh, no one cares. And if they do notice, what they just notice is weirdness. <laughs> they don't notice the character of God. No one would look at us and say, wow, what a God. Man, just, those people never cut their hair, praise God. Oh, guys all look like they're in their 50s, they, they have a 50s haircut. Wow, what a God they serve. It, it, it never happened. Uh, it, there's nothing drawing about the, just keeping these rules. And on some level, I, I, you know, we knew that. And I don't think it really was about trying to be a witness to others uh, about God's holiness because it doesn't do that. It was rather, if I'm honest, and I won't speak for anyone else, but it was the price of membership in the Holy Club. I, I wanted to be part of the Holy Club. You know, that's, I, that's a salvation ticket. And this is what you have to do to be... So that's why we did it. But we justified it as we're witnessing to the world. Don't compromise your witness by having a mustache. Huh. You know, you'll cause unbelief if you have a mustache. So keeping God's name holy, it's not about obeying some, somebody's arbitrary rules. It's about putting on display the unique holy character of our God and, and advancing his reputation. And we know the character that we're supposed to put on, that we're supposed to display. Uh, Jesus, it, Jesus, or John sums up Jesus' whole ministry, his whole revelation of God, when he says in 1 John 4, 8, that God is love. He sums it all up. And then he defines love by pointing us to the cross. Here's how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, so also we should lay down our life for one another. How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need and yet refuses to help? So God's character is defined by the cross. God is cross-life, self-sacrificial, enemy-embracing love down to the core of God's being. That's what's displayed on the cross. So our call is to manifest that enemy-embracing, self-sacrificial love, that humble servant kind of love that God demonstrated to us. That's why Paul sums up the Christian life when he says, be imitators of God, live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. It just sums it all up. So our, our, that's the name that we're to carry. 
That's the character that we're to display. That's the reputation that we are to be advancing in all that we do. To the degree that we do that, we're fulfilling God's purpose for us. We're being, playing the role that God's people were always supposed to play. But to the degree that we're not, we're bearing God's name in vain. And that's why John says, what good does it do? You can say the love of God abides in you, but if it's not displayed, if you're not willing to help a brother or sister in need, you've got more than you need, they've got less than you need, do the math, time to share. But if you're not willing to do that, well then, then you're bearing the name of the Lord in vain. The purpose of that love there is to transform us to be be windows through whom God's holiness can shine, praise God. And see, in shining that unique holiness, that unique kind of character, that unique love that is God's, that's, that's, that's what draws people into the kingdom. Uh, Jesus said in John 12, he goes, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to me. Now, John frequently uses words with a double meaning, double entendre. Um, uh, on the one hand, Jesus is referring to his crucifixion. When I'm lifted up on the cross, that's going to be the magnet that draws people's hearts. And that is the power of God, according to 1 Corinthians 1. Uh, the power of God is displayed when Jesus Christ is, dies, offers up his life on our, our behalf. So it's the love of God displayed on Calvary that draws people. But how do they even know about that unless they're seeing it in God's people? And so as we lift up Jesus Christ in our life, by emulating him, by imitating him, by putting on display the same love that he manifested throughout his life. Well, that is the means by which people are drawn to this unique God in this unique kingdom and this unique community. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, he goes, You are a letter of Christ, prepared by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, on the tablets of stone, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of the human heart. Saying, he's saying to the Corinthians, and he's saying to all of us, you are God's love letter to the world. Uh, you are, your, your life is what people will read. What they know about God will come from what you display in your life. Um, and and uh, our commitment's got to be to be giving the message that we've been given, to be the love letter that God wants us to be, to be communicating in, in our thoughts, in our words, and our deeds, the kind of love that God reflected in heaven. And see, uh, on Calvary, and as we do that, to the degree that we do that, that we're imitators of God and living in love as Christ loved us, to that degree, God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. The whole clause of the, our Father, is it, it, the, the first section is all interconnected. As we bear God's name, and put his character on display, and advance his reputation, his will gets done on earth as it is in heaven. And folks, this is, this is the, the whole kitten caboodle. This is, the, this is the central thing in our life. This is, this is our main calling. This is the purpose of our life. It's one thing about us that, 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 that will last forever. So it's got to be our highest priority. That's why Jesus said, uh, seek first the kingdom of God and, and his righteousness, his right relatedness, and everything else will be added unto you. Don't be like the Gentiles chasing after all sorts of stuff, but rather, but rather be, have as your highest priority, living in the kingdom, living under the reign of God and putting on display the character of God. To seek it first means it's not something you do on Saturday but then forget on Sunday through, through Friday. No, this is, to have it as a highest priority is to have it as a highest priority at all times. 
Today's highest goal is for me to reflect the love of Jesus Christ. Tomorrow's highest goal is to reflect the love of Jesus Christ. And Tuesday and Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and so on for the rest of my life, each day, each moment, the highest goal has got to be to put on display the character of God, to shine, to be the means by which God's holiness shines to this world and attracts the world and advances God's reputation in this world. It's more important than your job, more important than uh, whatever opportunities you can give your kids. As important as that is, there's something more important than that. Whatever, whatever other goals and you've got, they may be good, laudable, and wonderful, and hallelujah, but more important than that is the question of what kind of character do you display 24-7, and whose reputation are you advancing 24-7? So we're called to be the people that reflect that love, amen. And the message that we're to embody, as we're these love letters of God, the message that we're to embody is very simple. It's that whoever you're looking at, you've got unsurpassable worth, because your creator thought you were worth dying for, and he died for you because he wants a, a, a life-transforming relationship with you. That's it right there. That's the message that we're to be saying in word and in deed and in every other way. So we're the people who are called to replicate Calvary kind of love. And we do it to our spouses. We do it to, with our children, our family, our friends, our neighbors. But we also manifest this love to our enemies, personal enemies, uh, national enemies, whatever other kind of political enemies that you might have. We're to manifest this kind of love to the forgotten people in the world, those who are the, um, the invisible folks, the ones on the margins, the ones who are oppressed. We're to manifest the Father's character to those who are strangers and foreigners and immigrants, to all people at all times, no exceptions, if, ands, or buts, or exception clauses. No, our job is to shine with that indiscriminate love of Abba, Father. And what makes this particularly urgent? Uh, the fire burns in me harder than it otherwise would because of this fact. We're supposed to be known for our love. This is everything. We're supposed to be known for the outrageous way that we love. Because we bear the name of the God whose essence is love. So I ask the question, is the church in America known for that? See, that's exactly it. It, it produces a giggle. The truth is, you can go out and find a thousand random unbelievers and say, what's the first word that comes to your mind when you hear the word Christian? And I can almost guarantee you that not more than one of them, and probably not even one, is going to say, oh, those people, they just love, 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 love. They never stop loving. It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what your lifestyle is. They just want to serve you, and they want to help you. And they, Oh, they're just incredible. Wow. It's not going to happen. And that's tragic, because that ought to be our reputation. Uh, there's all sorts of studies done on this. Um, Paul was sharing with me this one study, Paul Eddy, my covenant bro, uh, that, that showed that on these surveys of unbelievers, what do they associate Christianity with? Number one in America was they don't like gay people. Number two was they think men are superior to women. That's the, that, that's the impression that folks have. Number three was they're aligned with this or that political cause. And so, so some would say that, that, you know, especially with the conservative Christians, they're aligned with conservative politics and they're, they're pro-Trump and they vote for these, these policies. And see, what happens then is whatever animosity a person has towards that political wing, they now have towards Christians because Christians have now identified with that political wing. And the, uh, other folks would say, oh, those Christians, they're, they're, they just buy into the democratic things, the left progressive stuff, you know, all that, whatever. And whatever animosity they have towards liberals now is going to be directed towards Christians. And so, in both cases, the reputation of God is being tarnished because it's confused with all sorts of political opinions. 
And God's character is being dragged through the mud. And instead of attracting a bunch of people by manifesting God's love, we're repelling a bunch of people because we've identified it with a political party. And that ought never to happen. And see what, amen. It ought never happen. That's what it is to bear the name of God in vain. You're bearing it in vain if what you're known for is your opinions about this, that, or the other thing, instead of the character that, are, that we're called to display to all people at all times. Christians are known for a lot of things. We're known for a lot of things, except for the one thing that we're supposed to be known for, and that is this outrageous willingness to humbly serve people, whether we know them or not, whether they like us or not, no ifs, ands, or buts. That's Paul says, this is the gravitas of this thing here. 1 Corinthians 13, we've all read it, but it's, it's radical because Paul says you can have you know, gift of tongues and prophecy and you can have, have all wisdom and understand all knowledge and, and, and move faith that can move mountains. You can have all the right political opinions in the world. I'm sure you do, but if it's not motivated by love and if it's not for the purpose of furthering love, it's altogether worthless, altogether worthless, a noisy gong, a clinging symbol. This is the all or nothing of the Christian life. If, 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 if this is our bullseye, living like this, imitating God, replicating the love of Jesus Christ, advancing the, 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 the holy reputation of Abba Father. Um, because if we get this down, everything else we need to get down will be gotten down. But if we fail to live like this, if we fail to be known by this, well, then it doesn't matter what else we do. From a kingdom perspective, it's altogether worthless. Everything hangs on this. We take the name of, of, of God in vain and we fuse it and mix it up with all the mundane stuff of the world. We take the name of the Lord in vain and we slap it, make it into a label. It just enhances our own authority. Oh, I happen to represent God's opinion on this. Here's the Christian way of thinking about this. So instead of glory, glorifying God's name, we drag his reputation through the mud and mix it up with all the junk of this world. So it's, it's, it's a matter of urgency that the fact that there's so many Christians who are not keeping the name holy makes it all the more important for us to keep that holy. To show that, that this is the way it's supposed to be in this world. The fact that so many people are sending the wrong message makes it all the more urgent that we send the right message. And we send that right message by the uncommon way that we are willing to love and sacrifice for others. Uh, we're doing that with the One Fun campaign, right? We just sacrifice... Here, here, a lot of churches, black churches, have, are way under-resourced. They have the highest needs and the least amount of resources to meet those needs. Well, what if some of us who have enough to meet our needs sacrifice for their sake? That's what we're doing. Before that, it was about welcoming people from Afghanistan and the Congo and having people sacrifice their time and their money and their energy for that. Because that's what the people of God do. And let me tell you, I, 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 I'm just so proud of this church. I, I got a letter from the head of uh, Assist Minnesota, which is the organization that we were partnering with, and he thanked me because we had over 50 people volunteer to welcome people from the Congo and from Afghanistan and help them get settled in, in, in Minnesota and things like that. So praise God, hats off to you. And he was just thanking me for that. Amen. I just notice this, that in the Lord's Prayer, when we pray, Our Father who art in heaven... And we'll talk about that hour a little bit later on in this series. It means that we're all children of God because we have a common father. But when we pray to our Father who art in heaven, uh, hallowed be your name. We're praying a prayer that we help bring about. We, we, we are to be the answer to this prayer. 
hallowed be your name. We're really saying, Lord, help us to keep your name and your reputation and your character separate, distinct, other than all the common things of this world. And, and, and let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a prayer that we're supposed to be answering. So we're, we're, we're praying for the empowerment to be living in the way that God wants us to be living. And it's a prayer for the whole community that we together can hold up the unique and holy character of God. We are called to answer the prayer that we pray. So I'll end with these two words here. Number one, uh, if you weren't here the last two weeks, I, I gave this challenge and I encourage folks to enter into this covenant, which has just grown in gravitas in my heart. Uh, and the covenant is to daily pray for your enemies. Pray for your enemies. We have online, uh, if you go on our website, you can find a form that, where you can write down your enemies. It's kind of a reminder. Pray for your enemies. And who are the people that you have the hardest time not loathing? Who are the people that just disgust you? Uh, who are the people that you think are destroying America or destroying the world? Or, or Whoever your enemy is, you can have one, you can have ten. I don't care, but, but can you commit to praying for them every day? Uh, pray, agree with God that they have unsurpassable worth and then just pray blessing on them. That's a, like one-on-one loving people is agree with God that, that they were dying for and then you pray accordingly. Pray blessing on them. And it, it, you're flexing the most important muscle that, that, that we can flex. The, this is the most distinctive aspect of, of the love that we're called to, to manifest. It's a love towards enemies. Everyone else in the world thinks it's okay just to retaliate against them, but we're called to do what Jesus did and, and, and to love on them. So I, I encourage you, if... if, if if you're open to that, to covenant in your heart to do that. And we're, we're going to do it for a month, uh, but I'm hoping that this just becomes part of our culture. We are the people who pray for our enemies. That's um, what we're called to do. Secondly, I encourage all of us to talk to God uh, and, and to other kingdom people that we sh- share life with. To be asking the question, how can I, how can we better manifest this unique and holy self-sacrificial, enemy-embracing character of God to our neighbors, to our friends, to our foes, to, whatever, to this need or that need. Be, be, ask the Spirit to guide you on that. How, how can we better? This is, because this is the bullseye, this is something we should always be aspiring to get better at because we all have room to grow in this area. That's why the praying for enemies is so important. You're, you're, you're lifting weights there, okay? You're, you're going to get better at that the more that you do it. Ask God and talk to others about your priorities. Are, are your priorities right? Are you... Does your life reflect seeking first the kingdom of God? And maybe that God would call on some people to rearrange some of your priorities. Maybe this priority is supposed to kind of take a back seat, maybe just for a while or maybe permanently, because the Lord would lead you to now sacrifice time and energy and money, maybe helping out the elderly person in your neighborhood, maybe volunteering at a ministry here at the church, maybe it's helping out with the homeless or with the settled community. However God leads you, he will lead you if you're open to that. But it means maybe readjusting some priorities. Uh, and that's something we always need to be doing. The, the pattern of this world will always be trying to conform us to the world. There's a, and there's principalities and powers out there that, to, that enforce that. There's a pull towards conformity. Our, our, our passion has got to be to be nonconformist. Not weird to be weird, but weird in the most loving kind of way. Weird in our willingness to serve and to help others. And that's how we glorify the Father. And that's how his reputation and his kingdom advance in this world. And that's what it's all about. Amen? Amen. All righty. If you, um, if you are, uh, uh, what we say, oh, we have on Tuesdays, I got to transition here. 
Announcement time. On Tuesdays, we've got the Muse cast, and I encourage you to go a little deeper with the message, and you can uh, travel along with them. Uh, check out our gathering groups, uh, where they also will be discussing uh, the, the topic of the message, and you can go deeper with it that way. Uh, if you're part of our pod creation, there's some uh, means online where you can pray for somebody if you need to, to have prayer. And if you're part of the congregation here in the physical locale, our prayer teams will be up front and encourage you to take advantage of that. And finally, if you're going to be here next week uh, on site, uh, let us know. And, and you have children, let us know so that we can have, uh, make sure we have enough folks in our children's church to minister to, the, to them. Abba Father, thank you for calling us, for making us your children, for, for, for calling us to be the means by which you, your holiness, your love, your character shines. Help us to be that, Lord. Help us to be light in this darkness. Help us to surrender our own agendas to your agenda, that your will may be done in our life and through our life as it is in heaven. We give you praise in Jesus' name. And all God's people said one more time. Amen. Amen. Go out and glorify the name.